This is episode 162 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 162 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I have Sean Quigg on the show and this is actually a replay of Wednesday night's webinar which was a live stream with Sean who is a real estate lawyer going through Q&A and the common mistakes that people make when they do JVs. So Sean specifically calls himself a real estate investor lawyer. He's the only one I've ever heard call himself that and he believes he is the only one and he specializes in helping real estate investors, which I think is super smart, super lucrative from an entrepreneurial standpoint, but it's also super useful for our audience, which is why I wanted to have him on to talk about it. So he went through several different items. Uh, he talked through the nuts and bolts of joint venture contracts and what you need to know, what you need to watch out for, how to plan your exits, and how to do pre-diligence on people that you're thinking about doing a joint venture with. So all very important discussions from somebody who's an investor himself and deals with investors all day long and deals with joint ventures all day long so he knows what to look out for and that's a lot different from say even how I started dealing with lawyers who maybe did a joint venture here and there one or two times in their career and when I asked about it it was a big endeavor to come up with a joint venture agreement Um, more and more I'm hearing in the real estate investor community that there are lawyers that do a lot of this and it's my gut feel that that's the type of lawyer that I would want to work with for a joint venture agreement so um, nothing on today's episode just for the record is real estate advice please always seek your own independent uh, legal advice your own accounting advice make sure that you hire a professional before you make any decisions now that professional could be Sean or it could be somebody else I've simply brought him on here for information purposes and for your education. So just before we get into the episode, there's a lot that goes into making an episode like this, marketing it, um, getting the Q&A going, and there's a lot of expense as well. So if you wouldn't mind, if you get value from this, please just rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already done that, and share this episode with somebody you think it could help. I'd greatly appreciate that, and it'll help it help more people. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this episode with Sean Quick. Okay, so welcome to this special edition, webinar edition of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Sean Quigg, a real estate lawyer on the show. And Sean, you're going to be covering joint ventures specifically. So I'm really looking forward to this. And we've never dug into the nuts and bolts. We've never really deep dove. You reached out to me and pointed that out to me. And uh, you're right. So uh, let's get to it. First off, Sean, um, welcome and thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Andrew. It's my pleasure. Really my honor uh, to be able to come on and, and chat with you and, and chat with all the listeners. Awesome. Sean, awesome. Uh, you mentioned to me, uh, you know, and this is kind of like first and foremost, a requirement of the show that you be an investor. Occasionally we have a couple that are not, but uh, I'd say 99.9% of our guests are, and I believe you are as well. Would you mind just telling me a little bit about your background? Sure. So I got started in real estate investing completely by accident. Uh, I left a government job to go to law school in Windsor. And, you know, when, when you do that, you leave a salary on the table, etc. So I bought a house not too far from the school and rented out the rooms to other law students. And I thought, you know, this might be a way to uh, recover from, you know, losing that salary. And it also helps, you know, buy beer on weekends in law school, which is an essential ingredient. And so, you know, I started to see the power of 
having other people pay my mortgage payment pretty quickly. So uh, I ended up buying a second uh, property in my second year uh, when I was doing my MBA as part of part of my, my joint degree and uh, took the lessons I learned on the first one, bought way close to school, bought a property that I could add a bedroom to, did all of that. And I still own that property today. It is doing quite well. And, uh, you know, as I started to, to uh, actually have some legitimate cash flow from that second property, uh, you know, I started to think, hey, this might be something I should take on with a little more gusto. So, um, you know, as I was moving into the articling phase of, of law school after graduating and before becoming licensed, uh, I hired a mentor who also happens to be on the call tonight. I, I bought a couple of multifamily properties in New Brunswick and uh, I'm in the midst of refinancing those now. Okay, nice. Um, and yeah, just a note on your Windsor stuff. It seems like everyone I've talked to who who got in there at least a couple of years ago, the cash flow was just insane, especially on the student rentals. Um, oh yeah, like give me an idea of what what you had there and and what you had it rented for. Well, originally when I first got in, I was still green. I was renting the rooms up for four hundred and fifty bucks a month. There was six rooms, and uh, before long, by year two, it was, it was a three thousand dollar a month uh, revenue property, and my mm-hmm. costs, you know, including the mortgage were uh, less than 2000 so i was cash flowing about a thousand bucks a month which i i tried not to use um sort of saving up for the next one yeah uh but i dipped in here and there and uh, it's it's doing even better now uh I've sort of changed up the strategy a bit and um it's doing quite well yeah it's great when you can just let it build up it pays for all your your incidental expenses right all right so you were obviously on the law path, decided to be a real estate lawyer. Did you know you were going to do that before you started buying real estate or that just kind of went hand in hand? No, I went to Bay Street first. Um, so I was I was on Bay Street working for a, a larger firm and thought I was going to be doing big law type work, but uh, it wasn't fulfilling. I enjoyed what I was doing. I enjoyed the people I work with. I was on some cool projects. Uh, but in the end, it wasn't for me, right? I wanted to sort of control what I was doing, do something I loved, and also pair my my interest, my passion, uh, my sort of hobby with my profession. So, you know, right about halfway through articling, I started to seriously consider the idea of becoming a real estate investor lawyer, uh, which is, uh, you know, an area of law that I've sort of made up. And uh, and decided to focus on those areas of law that serve investors, serve real estate investors, and uh, and investors in businesses as well, Uh, but uh, mostly real estate investors. And uh, so I leveled up by getting educated on how to invest in real estate. I took some courses. I read a lot of books, um, and that way I could not only sort of be that legal professional. I could also be uh, a business confidant, like someone who can actually mm-hmm. offer real insight and be able yeah. to speak the same language. Yeah, that's the big thing because I've, I've been telling people you just need like to synthesize, right? You kind of need to be the business mind 
and and join together the various different people, right? Your bro, your insurance broker doesn't necessarily think doesn't necessarily think like an investor. Your lawyer right. doesn't necessarily think like an investor, but it sure helps when they do because then you don't have to fill in those blanks. So uh, that's the cool thing with you. I've definitely um, you know spoken with a few real estate lawyers that have you know maybe a property or two. Um, but it's not, it's not their focus. So this is a, a cool opportunity to have you on. Appreciate you doing this. So maybe the first thing, um, you know, as we, as we get started here, I don't know if you have a, a presentation specifically, I know you had specific points that you were going to cover. So I will uh, let you have the mic if that's the way you want to do it. And uh, I can just chime in and ask you questions as we go. Sure. So, you know, I prepared a few things for, for people out there who are looking to do deals with others, right? And we run into this problem when we run out of our own capital or we've got all of our capital deployed into other projects and we've got to expand and bring on partners because we don't want to stop the momentum. We want to keep the train going. And so, you know, most people out there are going to be familiar with the concept of a joint venture, right? But there's a lot of mystique about what it is. You know, it's not a real entity in law, like a corporation or, or a person, an individual like you and I. Um, it's, it's sort of this concept, this idea. Uh, now, in law, it's actually defined. It, it's defined as two or more people coming together with a view to profit um, in some form of project. And so when we get into joint ventures, we've got to keep that in mind, right? We've got to be looking for a profit. We've got to have a project and we've got to be uh, setting in place uh, a plan, a plan to get from A to B, from, you know, our investment to our exit. So what I want to share with people tonight is sort of my thoughts, my high level thoughts on what it looks like to be in a joint venture, how as you know, presumably most, most people listening will be active partners, but certainly they'll be passive or money partners listening as well. And so we'll talk about what everyone should be considering uh, when they're considering uh, joining or participating in a joint venture and really sort of how to avoid the common pitfalls that I see. You know, when I got into this role, I thought I'd be helping draft uh, lots of joint ventures, and, and I am. But what surprised me is how many I'm helping people exit from. And so what I've, what I've started to notice is some trends. So we'll talk about the trends, uh, where JVs go wrong, and how to avoid those pitfalls so we can have successful projects and limit the amount of time and effort we're spending on projects that aren't ultimately fulfilling our ultimate why, right? Our goal, why we're in uh, the investment space to begin with. So let's start with, uh, in my view, probably the most important part of the joint venture preparation. And that, you know, I sort of terminate, uh, or uh, my terminology is pre-diligence. So, you know, when there are conflicts in a joint venture agreement, or between joint venture partners, it usually comes down to a misalignment of goals. And this, this can be, you know, very far ranging in terms of where the misalignment might be. Uh, it can be small misalignments, it can be large, but ultimately, um, usually most conflicts come down to a misalignment. And so what I tell people, especially new investors getting into the game, when they're talking about joint ventures or considering doing joint ventures, I tell them, you got to get to know your partner. 
And I don't mean talk about real estate. I mean, talk about anything but real estate. You know, we're coming out of the COVID age now. So perhaps there'll be more, you know, dinners, drinks, get togethers, as opposed to Zoom calls or telephone calls. And hopefully we're, we're at that point. Um, but um, the, the overarching sort of thing to take away from this is it is really critical to understand who you're getting into business with. What makes them tick? Ask them about their life. Ask them about their role at their job. What they like, what they dislike there. Because, you know, when someone's contributing money or on the other side, time and effort to the joint venture, you know, our expectations of the other person need to be clearly defined in advance. And also, we don't necessarily know how people are going to react when certain things and typically things that are unexpected occur. We want to know that our partners can remain calm, that uh, they're looking at the long picture, right? The, the, the long view or, or um, they're in it for the long haul. So, you know, if we lose a tenant tomorrow, we're not having someone threatening to blow up the deal, right? That would not be the level of stability that I would certainly choose in a partner. So what it comes down to is, do some pre-diligence on your partner. Get a sense of, you know, if you're the active partner, get a sense of how much capital is this money partner got uh, in terms of what do they have available to invest? You don't want to be partnering with someone who's contributing their last 25000 to your deal because they're not in a position to be investing with you uh, because that's too risky. It's too risky for both of you. Uh, you want to be investing with people, with money partners, who can afford to lose their investment. Not saying that they will, but this is an investment. This is not a guarantee or the entire world would be doing it. Things go wrong and sometimes things happen. And I'm sure it's happened to you. Actually, I know it's happened to you. It's certainly happened to me. And you know, things, things don't always work out. So we want to know how our partners are going to react. Right? If we're the money partner, we want to be asking about experience. And if a if an active partner doesn't have experience, that doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't do that deal with them. But what we want to know is who are they leaning on? Who are their mentors? What are the experiences of their mentors? Do they have people who can help them or help guide them through? You know, I use the analogy of the railings that come up on the bowling lane, right? To keep the ball on the lane uh, when you're when you're a kid. So to prevent gutter balls. So I, that's what I look for. You know, is someone got those railings up? Does someone have someone in the background helping them move forward? So this is the level, this is the type of pre-diligence we want to be doing on our joint venture partners. And then it comes down to sort of what are we going to do with our joint venture, right? And so it is awesome and it is fun to talk about cash flow and appreciation and mortgage pay down and the vacations we're going to take and the money we're going to make, right? That's all fun. But we got to focus on something else, and that's our exit. Defining the exit, and, you know, as an aside, there should always be the potential for at least two exits, uh, because like I said earlier, things don't always go as planned. Um, so we want to keep in mind that we want to have multiple exit strategies. <clears throat> so we should be planning our exit in advance, right? This should be part of the preliminary discussion we're having with our partners. What are we going to do? How long are we going to hold? You know, is this a burr, right? If we're burring this property, how long are we going to hold on to it? Is it a two, a three, or a five-year term? 
what are we going to do at five years? Right. You know, when I, when I host partners for a joint venture agreement drafting call, I ask them this exact question and you'd be surprised how, how often people don't know or haven't discussed this. So it's so important to plan our exit. Are we, is our exit to refinance again and keep it? Or are we going to trigger a sale or are we going to let the agreement sort of renew on uh, an annual or a monthly or a five-year basis and plan for it when our next renewal is up? And, you know, my view, the best way to, to approach that is the maximum flexibility. Build in a renewal term, have it automatically renew. And then at the end of each renewal term, if you want to continue on, you can decide what to do. But ultimately, we want to plan our exit. If the refinance is not going to come through for us. If we can't get an ARV that gets us a high enough valuation, well, maybe it's time to go to market, right? Maybe that's our second exit. So if, we, if we're not going to hang on to the property or we can't get enough of our capital out, maybe we, we decide to flip it. Or maybe we lock up a property and, you know, we'd rather make a quick, quick smaller dollar and wholesale the property to someone else who might want to take it on. That might be a way to do it too. And you know, Andrew, what I'm seeing a lot now is wholesalers joint venturing together. I have a deal right now where I have five wholesalers that are all getting a cut of, of one very large deal. And uh, so they all work together and each brought some component. I don't really know the, the logistics, but um, anyways, that's, um, that's important is planning your exit and really getting a good understanding of what that means. Hey, Sean, just to pause you, and I don't, I don't want to distract you here too much. I did just want to make a couple of points. Like you're giving so much very specific information based on your experience with these contracts. And I just want to really drive home that point to anyone listening to this. Like the first lawyer that I asked to do a JV agreement for me, he responded with, yeah, I think I can find a template. Um, I think one of our partners will have a template for that. Like that, if I'd known what I know now would have been the end of the conversation about that. Cause I don't want to work with a guy who's, Oh, I think I can find one. I want to work with somebody who, um, it does not necessarily have to be you, Sean, but it's somebody who, who does this all day long and they've continually updated their template based on the common problems. And you keep pointing out these common problems and these common issues you see coming up with your investors. Um, you want to work with somebody who's refined their processes based on feedback from clients and, and successful deals. So, uh, just, couple of things that I wanted to point out there is you just don't get this perspective when you work with lawyers who don't actually invest themselves or don't do this a lot all day long. Uh, so they don't necessarily need to be investors, but certainly helps. Anyways, just a couple of points I wanted to point out there because uh, you're sharing a lot of value and I uh, hope I didn't distract it too much. No, you didn't. It leads right into another point, uh, which is why boilerplate agreements don't work. So boilerplate agreements, you know, these are the, the templates that are flying around the social media groups <clears throat> and um, you might find at Law Depot, for instance, or anything like that. They, there's a time and a place <clears throat> for those. But we're talking about investments where people are investing hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps millions of dollars <clears throat> into a property. And to use a templated agreement puts you and your partner at substantial risk for a couple of reasons. Number one. Did you read all 40 pages of it? Did you take the time to understand how the terms work together, how they feed off of each other, how they play off of each other? Um, <clears throat> probably not, right? Like, I don't really like reading those, but that's my job. So that's what I do. And I understand them. 
but for someone who who's not legally trained like the the nuances of the contract might easily slip past them so i encourage people you know even if it's a different lawyer like this is a relatively cheap insurance policy to get an agreement sort of customized to your deal when i when i draft jv agreements with my clients and their partners and what we do is we get on a zoom call it's an hour long i ask 80 to 100 questions that's a lot of variables and each one of those questions impacts the agreement right some of them are you know basic what's the percentage split right assuming all goes well right but then some of it gets down to well what happens if this scenario occurs how do we how do we contribute cash is there a different split right what about life insurance what happens if someone passes away like these are all questions that you're probably not asking your partner uh, to begin with and maybe maybe not have not even considered uh, that and uh, when you start working with template or boilerplate agreements you don't necessarily know that all of those bases have been covered so i have a client who was trying to exit from an agreement <clears throat> um, rather his partners were trying to exit and he had a lawyer sounds a little bit like the lawyer you were just uh, referring to andrew who drafted up an agreement for him and the agreement supposedly said that if a partner wanted out early they had to pay a ten thousand dollar early exit penalty so that was the first thing he said to me here's the agreement it's a ten thousand dollar penalty uh, so make sure this happens well, turns out the $10,000 penalty only applied um, if six or seven preconditions were met and not a single one of them was met. Um, and, you know, it would have required the property to have been listed on the market with no offers and then uh, appraised. None of these things happen, right? There's there's a whole slew of, of steps. And um, so I had to break the news to him that, uh, you know, as much as I'd love to go argue for it, You've got no basis in contract for it. So instead of getting that $10,000 penalty that he had or thought he was getting, he ended up uh, getting no penalty, um, had the the cost of the exit from the joint venture because his joint venture partners also hired a lawyer and we had to negotiate an exit, right? And so it was a bit of a swing for him the other way. And so you know, I encourage people like, you know, even if it's not me, right? Okay, that's not the important part. The important part is, Get someone to go through the whole life cycle of the deal with you. You know, what, it, the deal doesn't just end when we refinance and fill the units with tenants. Um, you know, there are refinance events. There are opportunities to uh, perhaps sever and build, right? Or add additional dwelling units, or maybe switch up and go into short-term rentals. If if the bylaws change or the bylaw, the, the threat of, short-term rental bans doesn't actually happen in a particular municipality, et cetera, which I know you've talked about at length uh, in, in numerous numerous episodes, right? Uh, so we, we want to be building in some flexibility and a process for making decisions. And I, what I find is boilerplate agreements go very broad and not very specific. And broad, there's a, there's a time and place for going broad in a contract, right? But not in these types of agreements. So what I recommend is get rid of your boilerplate, pay your lawyer, you know, a little bit of money to get uh, to get a customized agreement so that it fits your terms and is exactly what you expected uh, because you don't want to end up short $10,000 or more, 
uh, when uh, when your agreement ends. Yeah, just to add to that point further is when you if you're working off of a, an agreement that your lawyer doesn't know, he's going to have to put in way more hours and bill you way more hours to make it right. Right? Not to say that that lawyer couldn't come up with a great agreement, but they'll probably spend you know quadrupled the hours yeah. getting there. And, uh, you know, that's what happened for me. The one I did is like $4,000 and legal fees. he discounted it for me. He's like, this is totally unreasonable. He's like, so yeah. it was 4,000 an hour, but I'm only billing you a thousand, uh, at the time. But I, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, other lawyers say like, Hey, we do this all day long. We have a really good template we work off of. So it's, you know, it's usually seven fifty or something like that. Not to give out numbers. I mean, I know there's, there's a, a range that, um, that, you know, is very reasonable for this type of thing. So, right. um, would you say like ballpark we're getting into number of pages are we like 10 or more are we can we can we get it more simple than that because i know a lot of people like we want to be able to understand what's in our agreements see it very clearly um a lot of people don't like to sit still to read through that stuff as you know um what are we looking at typically from what you see depends depends on a couple of things number one who's your partner your part your agreement is going to look a lot different if your partner is your spouse your sibling, your parent, your best friend from high school, as opposed to someone you met in a Facebook group. Uh, so I've di- I have a number of different bases that I work off of. Um, and one of the criteria that I consider is who are your partners? Because the closer relationally you are to your partner, the more broad I'm willing to, to write the agreement. Because there's, there's built-in emotional equity already there. And so uh, we're more likely to be able to come up with a reasonable solution. The second criteria is what type of project are you doing, right? If you're doing a flip, if you're doing a flip, you probably don't need a 30-page agreement, right? Because you're going to be in and then out. But if you're doing a burr, you're going to need something more substantial. I have a client who's building, right? Who's developing and then potentially building on a piece of land, that agreement, I, I mean, I, that one hour call turned into a two hour call earlier today uh, to go through the nuances of that deal. So that deal is going to be a little bit longer. My, what, you know, to get at what you're saying though, the simplicity, the ability to understand, it's not in the length of pages, it's in the language. And so I recently rewrote uh, uh, my base template to get rid of the legalese, to make it simple, to make it easy to understand, to follow. It's logic, right? We logically go through the life cycle of a deal as we go through the contract. So it makes intuitive sense. And I use simple language. I also have a schedule that sets out all of the particulars so uh, that we can easily refer to things by just flipping to the schedule. And so, uh, you know, my template that I work off of for most deals that I build off of is still in the 20 or so pages but it's very simple to read and the feedback so far has been great. Yeah. I mean, good to know. And, and there is no right number of pages. It's, right. it's whatever it takes to, to get the deal done. Interesting point you make about with family or closer relationships, how it could be more broad and then how it needs to be more specific, the less you know someone. Um, I guess I've had very casual um, joint ventures with people I'm like pretty close with. And um, you know, it, I wouldn't recommend this to just about anybody, but it's actually worked out pretty well for me just because we, you know, we know each other in and out. Like we know, we know how we're going to be in these situations. So I really like the point you made 
it, it really does come down to how is somebody going to be if A happens? Like, do they have, do they get triggered easily? And you, yeah, definitely don't want to be in that situation. Yeah. And then you mentioned before, you don't want somebody with their last dollar. Um, you know, speaking from experience, like when I have somebody approach me and I get that feeling like they're like, Hey, Andrew, we'd love to put some money to work. It's like me and my brother together can scrape together the amount. I'm like, uh, you know what? That's that, that's not a good idea. <laughs> no, yeah. let's, uh, let's not go down that road. Uh, it sounds like more of a working partner kind of a uh, thing until you get more comfortable kind of thing. So, uh, right. all right. Um, I'm sure we are going to have some, some questions come in, um, if you still have more to cover, let's cover that first because I, you very well will cover what, what the questions will be. So let's uh, continue on. Okay. So, you know, building off that, uh, one, one thing I, I profess and I, I try and help my clients understand is that it is really important to plan for the unexpected. You know, I've mentioned this a couple of times and, you know, as an aside, what I'll tell you, and it really relates directly to what you just said, Andrew, that is the contract if in a really good partnership, right, in a really good deal with good partners, the contract is like a manual. We go to it to make sure, okay, what did we agree on in this scenario? Fine, no problem. In fact, m- many times you may not even look at it because it's not really there for the deal. It's there if the deal goes wrong because we know what the deal is. And if we sort of forget the, the nuances, we can flip to our manual, right, which is our agreement. The deal is there in case, or sorry, the contract's there in case the deal goes wrong. Because if the deal goes wrong, we could end up in court, right? We could, depending on how much money's at stake, uh, we could end up in arbitration, we could end up in mediation, and the decision maker, if there is one, or the mediator, uh, is going to want to see the contract and see what you agreed to. And uh, not only that, but your lawyer, whoever's representing you on your exit, um, is going to use the terms to negotiate uh, on your behalf. And so, to to get uh, to get back to planning for the unexpected, you know, I, I ask uh, a number of questions that uh, don't have an answer uh, when I'm on the call. And what I mean by that is they've never considered these particular questions. In fact, you, you know, I, I brought up a point earlier today on, on one of these calls that you know we're planning for 99% of things that won't occur, uh, and that's because. We don't want them to occur, but if they do, it's better to have a roadmap. What happens if this happens, right? We follow the, the path, we follow the, the progress, and we do what it says. And that way we have, uh, we limit the, the ability or the, the need to squabble or worse, go to litigation, uh, which is ultimately my end goal as the drafter is to you know, avoid litigation as much as we can because that's the wild west. So what I tell people is to plan for the unexpected, right? What happens if someone passes away? What happens if someone doesn't have extra money and we need to do a cash call? What happens if someone wants out early? And what's the consequence for that, right? So I have a number of these scenarios that we go through that I've spent time and, and thought about. I've also learned about things that go wrong in joint ventures, just being in the industry, both as an investor and as as a lawyer and so so i put these to my clients and oftentimes i'm sending them away with homework uh, i always joke around i'll bet you'll never you never expected to be assigned homework after you got out of school but nevertheless uh typically there's anywhere from five to 15 points to to go and talk about as partners and to 
figure out it, you know, and I find what that, what, what that creates is this sense of, you know, collectiveness. Like we've, we've decided what we're going to do in these doomsday scenarios. So if they do happen, the chances of a dispute are even less uh, because we talked about it. We agreed on, them, we sent it to the lawyer and the lawyer put it in the agreement. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll leave that at where it is plan for the unexpected you know, it's really fun to talk about cash flow and it's really fun to talk about profits, but it's not so fun to talk about what happens if someone suffers a brain injury. And so consider that, consider that when you're talking to your partners to plan for the unexpected. And uh, one of the last points I, I brought up were the top three reasons why I see joint ventures go wrong and how to avoid them. So let me just pull up my notes here. So I want to make sure that I hit these points properly. The first one I already talked about, and that is you didn't get to know your partner. Money is a commodity. It's, you know, my $5 bill is worth the exact same thing as Andrew's $5 bill, which might not even be worth $5 anymore, but that's another story for another day. Um, anyways, money is a commodity. So don't jump at the first person that throws money at you. Do your pre-diligence on your partner because when you don't, your messages get uh, sort of mixed potentially, your goals get uh, are not aligned, and uh, you can avoid a whole bunch of headache by simply just getting to know the person you're doing business with. The next one, uh, you've talked about this on your show a number of times, um, but I'm going to repeat it because it's sage, and that is you overwrote your deal. Right. You didn't underwrite it. You overwrote it. it. means you made the numbers work. Right. Listen, look at how profitable this deal is going to be. I just had to tweak the property management down to 1%. And I just had to make the fair market value of the rent to 120% of actual fair market value. But look, we're going to pay down this mortgage. You know, appreciation is going to be 7%. Um, you know, don't do that. Right. Try to impress your partner with, with jacked up numbers is just going to end in disaster because if you under deliver, <laughs> your partner is not going to want to do business with you again, um, which um, which I'll get to a little bit further in, in a sort of a bonus point. Uh, and the, the last real pitfall that I encourage people to avoid is being a poor communicator. Not all of us were born with the gift of gap, but it is incredibly important to learn how to have hard conversations with your partners how to be able to communicate effectively about what's going on, right? That initial, you know, most JVs are about bird deals, right? So if, if we are experiencing difficulties with contractors, with materials, right? We had a material shortage for a good portion of 2020. Um, if we are experiencing problems with our private lenders or uh, with our staff or whatever it might be, we want to be able to communicate this in a way that doesn't scare our partners, uh, but sort of uh, inspires confidence in you that you'll be able to resolve the scenario. We also want to be able to explain to them what's happening, right? How the property's doing, right? Once we refinance and we've got tenants in, we want to be communicating with them on a regular basis, reporting to them financially, making sure that they see what the money's being spent on, right? whether it's property management or whether you're managing, whether it's utilities, if you happen to be paying for those, et cetera. So we want to be really, really good communicators. And 
Um, on, on that note, you want to set expectations, right? You want to communicate good expectations. You want to paper the rules, right? Which is sort of, you know, it's important whether you, even if you just jot down the rules, right? If you don't want to, you know, spend the money on a joint venture agreement or you can't find one, et cetera, at least jot down something and don't bend them, right? Um, we are, when you're investing in a real estate deal, you are either involved in the industry such that you're the active partner or you've generated enough income to have surplus income that you can invest it. So, you know, you're doing real business. So it's important that you not bend the rules, right? The rules are the rules and that's what we're doing, right? There's, you can't have exceptions unless it's exceptional, uh, but uh, you, you want to stay firm on those, right? Understanding but firm because once you start bending rules, it's just like with tenants, as soon as you start banging rules, you know, everything, it just sort of goes downhill from there. So those are my top three pitfalls to avoid and how to avoid them. Sean, thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, that's good. I actually haven't said that in a while. So you just remind me, <laughs> reminded me to say that more. Don't force your numbers to work. It means your deal doesn't work. Keep looking at better deals. That's right. It's not a deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not a deal. It just means you have to work harder to find the deal. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of things and I, I know it's going to come up in the questions and I actually think somebody is asking a question similar to this. So um, yeah. there are a lot of people that will do, um, well, let's, let's say investor A wants to be the working partner or, or say the money partner and investor B wants to be the working partner. Uh, in order for investor A to get the mortgage, investor B can't be on the deal. And uh, this is a common scenario that I hear about because a lot of people who want to be working partners, there's a reason it's not necessarily that they don't have the money. Uh, it's that they can't qualify at the end. Right. So what is the approach in that situation? Because the banks want to see you say that they uh, there's no there's no third party interest in this property. Right. So right. it puts you in a conflict of interest if you're representing the bank and the two investors, does it not? It depends. So, okay. which is a cl classic lawyer response. So here's what I'll tell you. What the bank is looking for is whether or not the mortgage is for the benefit of a third party. So when you buy property, at least in Ontario, as that's all I can speak to, you have to do one of two things. You usually have to um, swear an affidavit that the property is not for the benefit of the third party, of a third party. I guess that that's really what it is. You have to swear a statement or an affidavit mm -hmm. saying that the mortgage is not for the benefit of a third party, which it could be in a very certain scenario, a very common scenario, and that is where there exists a bear trust agreement. So a bear trust agreement is simply a document which conveys title for the purposes of tax to a party that is not the title holder. So I don't know if I can share my screen, um, but I, if I can get on the whiteboard, I can sort of draw it out, which might be a little bit more helpful for those who are on the call. You should be able to do it now. Yes, I can. Okay. So the bear trust agreement is a fantastic tax planning uh, device or process, but uh, when it comes to buying property with mortgages, it gets a little dicey. So, you know, we have our, let me see, I draw here. So we have our property, here, right? And our property is owned by this person over here. Right? So they own it. What a bear trust agreement does is it conveys what we call beneficial title 
to this person over here. And potentially beneficial title to yourself as well. So what that looks like is a short agreement that says this party over here is holding title in trust for the benefit of this party and maybe this party, right? This would be your classic old school joint venture setup. But here's the thing. You're exactly right, Andrew. This person, when they're closing, has to swear an affidavit saying the property is not for the benefit of the third party, which it most certainly is in this scenario. So how do we get around this? We don't convey title. We don't convey title through the bear trust agreement to the third party, which in this case would be. So you're saying there's another way of doing it that's not conveying title? Yes. Uh, And that's through contract. So what I have my clients do is uh, their money partners, or I guess in this case, investor A, would contractually entitle investor B to an amount equal to X percent of the cash flow and X percent of the equity. So that third or investor B doesn't have an interest. The mortgage is not for their benefit. They're simply the beneficiary of income generated, but it's not the actual income. It's amounts equal to. So that's the nuanced difference. That's what gets us past this. Amounts um, equal to. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it pays to work with somebody who knows uh, knows how to make this work. Well, uh, we kept seeing this. We kept seeing this in our practice, and and yeah. you know, it's very uncomfortable to be in that position because you know I want I don't want to see deals blow up, but I've seen it. Right? You know, as soon as I have to disclose to the lender that there's a bare trust, the deals are done. The, the, at this level, and l- let me be very clear: at this level, we're talking like duplex, single family. It's very small multifamily, right? At this level, the bear trust agreement is a complete deal breaker. The bank doesn't care. Um, and, uh, you know, when we get into the large commercial multifamily, they actually expect it, right? Because most of these times we're buying in uh, limited partnership structures or mm-hmm. in other corporate structures where there would uh, necessarily require to be a bear trustee. But in this scenario, forget it. And in fact, uh, you know, you're you're putting you're putting all of your professionals, not only your lawyer, but your mortgage broker, in a very sticky spot if you start doing bear trust agreements. Now, what you do after closing is up to you. Um, you know, I'm not. Uh, I won't comment any further on that. But in terms of closing, um, this is the, what you want to do is work with someone who understands how to get around this, so that you're not putting yourself or any of the people you work with in a sticky spot. Yeah, and I'll I'll just say what I've seen. I mean, people people would just have one lawyer close the deal, or they go back to the same lawyer the day later and have that lawyer register it the day after the deal because he's no longer representing the bank. So I've seen that. Um, obviously, that's a gray area, probably not an ideal. And just on this note, like none of this is is actual legal advice. Like we're we're talking abstractly here. Obviously, at the end of the day, everyone needs to get a lawyer and you know, do it right with their lawyer. Um, always seek, uh, your professional legal advice before you, uh, you, you <laughs> complete you. a deal yeah. or proceed. And, and if that right. professional legal advice happens to be Sean, then, uh, then, you know, then okay. he has given you advice at that point. So, yeah. All right. Um, so we have some other questions rolling in. Okay. Um, so if I have a trust agreement with a corporation, uh, mortgage on my name for 100% beneficial ownership. Who gets to decide on disposition? The person with the title ownership or the corporation with beneficial ownership? 
The corporation. The person that's holding title is is a straw man. Like they yeah. they exist solely to be on title. And so um, it is the beneficial owner that actually owns the property. So um, legally what that means is they get to call the shots and the person that's on title, the, the trustee, is simply an agent. They simply take direction from the beneficial owner. From a tax point of view, um, the beneficial owner is the one who would recognize the revenue. Or, i sorry, realize, realize the revenue. Okay. And um, I, I should have said this before, so I apologize. I'm just going to jump back, guys. That previous discussion about bear trusts and all that stuff, um, the real takeaway I took from that is just that there is actually a way around the whole uh, bear trust agreement kills a deal. Like the banks hate them. You can't be given beneficial ownership to somebody else. Um, so, I mean, you're the first guy I've heard say there's a way around that without doing, you know, the sneaky thing. <laughs> so uh, that's good. All right. Um, now, next question. Mel asks, hi, Sean, do you have a list of pre-qualification partnership or a pre-qualification partnership questionnaire uh, that you can share? Well, you know, I, I would actually shy away from a list because, you know, people come from different walks of life and people generated their money from different, different ways, right? Some people work in a high paying job or some people inherited money. So I actually, w- I would feel it out. Uh, you know, and, and really what it comes down to is getting to know, like, and trust who you're in business with and getting to know, uh, frankly, like, let's be clear when a deal's going great, probably every partner is going to be great. <laughs> it's when deals don't go so well, right? It's when cash flow was supposed to be a thousand bucks and now it's only 400, right? That's, or, or a tenant moved out and it took us three months to find someone. So we were in there. We were in the red for a while. That's when we want to make sure that we pick the right partner. Just remember, money is a commodity and there's lots of it out there. So make sure you find someone who you know that when if things go bad or things go wrong or things don't go quite as expected, that you're going to be comfortable working with someone um, that you've done business with. Awesome. Okay, thanks for that. And guys, just uh, remember, if you have a question put it in the question and answer box. So there's a question and answer box at the bottom. That's where you ask your questions. If it's in the chat, it's going to get missed. So um, I have another one in here, but I I do believe there are people asking them in the chat. Please don't ask them there. I won't see it. Um, Okay. So Ajit, and I'm hoping I'm saying that right. Um, When we sold the property, what about the taxes on the profit? I mean, well, that's all based on on how your your agreement is written. But if you're entitled to, well, I guess I'll let you uh, go ahead and this answer is a that. Sean. Fantastic question. Yeah. This is a fantastic question. Uh, so, great question. Uh, something I wrestled with uh, for a while to make sure I understood how how we could do this. And really, what it comes down to is the joint venture needs an accountant. And the joint venture needs to uh, figure out what the gain resulting from the sale of the property will be that's attributable to the title holder and then split that in half and make the other party pay for it. Uh, That's the cleanest way uh, without you both being on title, because if you're both on title, you know, it's really quite easy, right? You, you, your tenants in common, so you split the the capital gain accordingly, uh, according to your percentage split on title. But when you're not, you sort of have to do it by way of adjustment, right? But the tax calculation, right? The personal income tax payable, section three income 
uh, calculation is quite complex. So it's, it doesn't really it doesn't really make sense for non-accountants to figure this out. Like for instance, if the capital gain is $100,000, 50% of that is taxable. And right? so the $50,000 goes into the title holders section three income and it gets taxed at the marginal rate. Well, that tax could be, well, I don't know what the lowest tax bracket tax is at now. Well, you know, if it's 25%, that's uh, 12, $12,500, $12, $12, right? Okay, so you would split that, that tax bill. But if it was uh, if at the highest tax rate, well, then 50% of that would be taxable. And so that would be 25 grand. So you'd split that. But uh, what we don't know is because, because most people are in the middle, right, between the lowest and the highest tax bracket, there's, there's a graduated system for figuring out taxes. So we need, we need an accountant to help us figure out what portion of that title holder's taxes owing is actually due to the capital gain and then have the active partner or the party that not on title take some of the proceeds they made from their deal and pay our passive partner back. Okay. So what you just said there made joint ventures a lot more complicated. <laughs> so I'm used to the, the way where you would just have it like say 50, 50 on your taxes. So I'd file all income, all expenses, and then only 50% of that applies to me. That's, that's the one you were talking about. That's really clean. But you're saying if you're the other- on title, you can do that. But if you're not on title and you're not a yeah. bear trust, uh, you're not the benefit of a sorry beneficiary of a bear trust agreement. You actually have no interest in the property, so you're not going to earn it. You're not going to incur a gain. Uh, only the title holder would mm-hmm. incur a gain. So you've got to be able to settle it uh, one way or the other, and ultimately it's going to come down to it, an accountant helping you figure out how much the increase in tax payable was, and then cut, cutting that in half all the more reason to work with a good accountant. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to give out recommendations for accountants here, but I'm yeah. sure people can, can speak with Sean or speak with other people and find out who they know. Um, right. That's usually what I like to keep it to. Um, I don't really recommend people, but I will say, Hey, I've heard this and I've heard that. And this guy yeah. seems to know his stuff. Um, okay. So Ryan asks um, if I do a joint venture with a money partner and the property is in the U S does my agreement need to be done with a lawyer in the state of purchase or can it be completed in Ontario? I think I asked you this question and you, you asked it for me. The exact, <laughs> the exact same question. So the, the answer, Ryan, is that it can absolutely be drafted in Ontario uh, with two, or I guess one exception, right? Or sorry, one requirement. And that is the agreement has to be governed by Ontario law. The property could be in anywhere in the world. It could be in Spain. It could be in um, Mexico. Like, it doesn't really matter uh, as long as the agreement is governed by Ontario law. And it is a tenet of commercial law that parties to a contract can pick the law that they want to govern the agreement. And they can also pick the court system that they want it to govern. So for instance, those don't actually, those don't even have to match, right? You can have uh, a court system in Nevada interpret law from Saskatchewan, right? Like that. I don't know why you would ever do that. But, um, well, there are reasons, but they're probably outside of the scope of today's call. Uh, but Ryan, in, in your case, you can have a joint venture agreement that concerns a property that exists outside of Ontario with uh, an agreement that's governed by Ontario law 
drafted by an Ontario lawyer. Thanks for answering that, Sean. So we're going to keep moving through them and um, we'll probably do like an eight or an eight ten cutoff for the questions. Sure. Um, okay, guys. So if you have questions, get them in. Um, okay. So John asks, what's the better option? I have a partner who is willing to go 50, 50 for money and active working. Um, should we just buy the property through my hold co and I issue him shares to that hold co equal to mine or just buy it through my hold co and do a JV agreement on the side? Another very good question. Very common question. So uh, this comes down to a few factors. Number one, anytime we start talking about issuing shares for equity, we have to make sure that we're not running afoul of our securities regulations in Ontario or in whatever jurisdiction you happen to be doing this deal in or uh, where your company um, is headquartered or, or based out of the jurisdiction of that corporation. And that's because as soon as you start selling shares, um, you might have to report that to the Ontario Securities Commission. Now, it doesn't mean it's, you know, it's not an initial public offering, right? We're not doing months and months and hundreds of thousands of dollars, but there is a process to follow and there is a little bit of cost to it and it might can be avoided by not doing that, by doing a joint venture agreement on the side where you, in this case, you would buy the company in your, in your company, or sorry, you'd buy the property in your company and then do a joint venture agreement between that company and your partner. That's, almost always my recommendation because I really don't like messing with the Ontario Securities Commission because they have a lot of power and they can shut you down. So, you know, I just don't, I don't like recommending that. There are times where it does make sense, right? If I've got three of my buddies that want to go in on a deal and it makes more sense for us to buy in a corp, then fine. But, you know, when I'm, I see it all the time in the groups, right? Like I got this deal, you get 25% equity and then they're talking about shares. That is a public offering. So, you know, we, we, or I guess it's a private offering, but to the public. So you got to be really careful with that. Yeah. And on that note, still, still not advice, but uh, I see a lot of people doing things that I know are not kosher <laughs> with, uh, with OSC. Like I would say probably uh, more than not investors doing things that, that could technically get you in trouble. So it's just oh, some, yeah. something to be, be aware of. Yeah. Um, and I've been through the share uh, sale process and yes, it's a giant pain in the butt. So if you can avoid it, that's, I mean, in my experience, I'd like to avoid it. Yeah. Okay. So anonymous attendee, can you talk through timelines in terms of enacting the agreements, uh, bracket, bear trust, et cetera, uh, in a project, for example, when would you go through writing out and enabling these agreements? When is the latest you can do it during a project? Well, another good question. So timing is one of the one of the most frequent questions I get. So here's the thing. These agreements take time. The bear trust agreement doesn't take as much time. The joint venture agreement does take time. So, you know, if you show up with a, you know, as a, as your average investor, you show up with a two-week closing, which I'm finding more and more these days. You know, the chances of getting your joint venture agreement also done in that two weeks is, is becoming more and more slim as, as more and more people uh, sort of want this type of setup. So what I can tell you is it's not the end of the world if you don't have your joint venture agreement signed before you close. Because, like I said earlier, the contract is there for when things go wrong. 
So, you know, unless things go wrong on day one, um, you know, we're, we're not, uh, which is pretty unlikely, um, you know, we're not really in a position. I, I have a client right now who closed in last summer and we're still working on this deal. And uh, that's because he's not as concerned. Uh, he, you know, he knows his partner, he trusts his partner, he's the active partner, he's doing a good job, he's meeting the budget. So neither of them are tremendously concerned with, with getting this, this agreement drafted and signed, you know, right away. But I have other people, you know, I have another client who, you know, I spoke with earlier who absolutely needs it signed before we get going or before we close on the land. In fact, I think before we even go firm on the deal, because there's literally hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake. So the investors want, you know, some of the investors are newer. And so they want the, the security of the contract. So, you know, and I understand that. So, um, you know, what it, what it comes down to is, you know, your, your lawyer's a, a person too, right? They've got families and things to do and, and they, they can't work 18 hours a day for, for too many days in a row. So uh, these things take time. And especially if you're working with someone who, you know, knows what they're doing and is good at what they do you know, those are not the people who you're going to find with tons of time, right? So you want to make sure that you uh, give give the details as quickly in advance as you can. Um, you know, I'm finding that joint venture agreements are taking at this point anywhere from two weeks to four weeks. Uh, I'm really working hard to get that down to two weeks, right? To get a file open, to get the call booked, to get the answers back from you and uh, to get it drafted so that, you um, that we can get that uh, finalized. All right, thanks, Sean. Keep moving through these uh, these questions. So Adil asks, if I own uh, the property title myself and loan is in my name, however, I have a bear trust agreement that makes my corp 100% beneficial owners, owner of the property, whenever I sell the property, would the capital gain be treated as corporate gain or personal gain? Well. My take, short answer, yeah. <laughs> my take is the corporation, but you tell me. Well, I mean, what I what I should be saying is ask your accountant. Yeah, uh, but but the answer is corporation. Yeah, of course, confirm with your accountant. But I mean, that, that seems like a fairly straightforward one. Okay, so that one is good. And uh, okay, another anonymous attendee question: uh, Is it possible to have a bear trust agreement splitting the beneficial ownership fifty fifty between the person carrying the mortgage bracket money partner and the and the corporation. Does that mean that the corporation can report 50% of the revenues expenses and that both parties would have equal say um, in selling the property and splitting the profits from disposition by 50%? Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, yes. It, first of all, there's several questions here. So yes, you can have a bear trust agreement splitting the beneficial ownership 50-50 between the person on title and the person uh, sorry, the person carrying the mortgage and the corporation, yes. Or between the money partner and the active partner, yes, you can do that. That does mean uh, that the corporation would report 50% of the revenue of the net profits as income. Um, or, uh, you know, if you want to build it out, the revenue minus the expenses. And it would be the same with the individual, the person that owns the other 50%. And both parties would have an equal, technically would have an equal say in selling the property. But if you control the corporation, then you get all the say. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. If you own both, <laughs> you own yeah. your own person and your corporation. If you actually, if you, you know, for clarification, if you look up the definition of a person, corporation is a person, right? It's just not yeah, a natural is. person, right? So if we want to add not some an individual, there, not an individual, uh, not an individual, but it is a person. Yeah. All right. Just to confuse people, we threw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ryan, would you recommend two partners who are close and uh, plan to do many deals, start a corporation together and buy property through the business, or is it easier to do joint ventures to allow flexibility in future deals? Well, this is very situation specific. Um, the decision to incorporate is a decision that has three major criteria and three sort of power team members that you need to talk to. One's obviously your lawyer, right? When I'm going to talk to you about legal liability, your structuring, and a little bit about tax. But more importantly, it is a tax discussion, right? You need to speak to your tax advisor about the pros and cons of owning property in real estate. If you've listened to Bigger Pockets or you've read any of the American media, you might think it's this great tax haven, uh, but it is not. So we got to make sure that we speak to our tax advisors about minimizing our tax if we're going to own in a corporation. And the last power team member we want to talk to is our mortgage broker because corporate borrowing is different. And, um, you know, it's neither better nor worse, I guess, depending on your perspective than uh, residential borrowing, but it is different and we want to be prepared for those nuanced differences. So, uh, you know, Ryan, I'd, I'd love to give you an answer like for flexibility. Uh, if, if you're, if you're good with your partner and you have the same sort of aligned vision with where you want to take the company, then being in a corporation together as directors and, and joint decision makers may be smart. You still need a shareholders agreement, by the way. And if you're working with someone who works with investors, they might have a shareholders agreement with a joint venture schedule, which uh, sets out how we are going to, uh, or rather what we're going to do to a particular property. Uh, but, uh, you know, a joint venture agreement per deal does add flexibility and does uh, sort of allow for us to change up, you know, ownership structure, percentage splits, who does what, et cetera. Yeah, I can speak from experience that having having a corporation together is very straightforward. But yeah, of course, like you said, the flexibility is definitely there if you have per deal yeah. basis. Okay, so thanks, Ryan, for the question. Um, uh, Rebel, I'm hoping I'm saying that right. Uh, can you elaborate on a time when one of your clients has had a lot of success doing several JV flips as a money partner slash money slash passive partner? And what do you think specifically attributed to this success? Well, it's a great question. But um, almost all of my par- all of my clients are active partners, um, so I can give you the active partner side. And, and you know, behind the active partner are the money partners. And I know for a fact that my uh, my clients work with numerous money partners, all of whom seem to come back. So, what I attribute their success to are, are a couple of things: great deals, right? They have a full team of people who are buying deals. They're doing good due diligence. They do not waver on their assumptions or their minimum criteria. So there's, you know, 
they might not be buying every deal in the book, but the ones they are buying, they're buying well, right? They are making money in the buy. The second, they communicate very well with their money partners. And they're always keeping them updated in terms of what the progress is. They mostly flip. Um, so, you know, they're, they're constantly keeping their money partners uh, updated. Um, and they're marketing to others to show, to, to bring that social proof uh, to the concept of what they're doing. And so I see their posts literally every day with their progress photos. And you can literally see where the money is going. Uh, right, you you might not see the checks cut or the e transfers or the visa swipes, uh, but you can see that today there's flooring and yesterday there wasn't. Right, and today there's trim and yesterday there wasn't, uh, or paint or whatever it might be. So they're very upfront. They're they are um, transparent, and uh, that that's so critical to making sure that your money partner is comfortable with. Uh, what their money is being spent on. And the third factor is they're really good people. Um, they are nice. They are understanding. Um, you know, they get frustrated at times, right? When, like we all do in this business, but they're able to deal with that very swiftly and find solutions. And they're really great people to talk to and that they've got good values. So I think those are, those are really good hallmarks of success especially in the flip game, which is, you know, a lot of money in very quick and then a lot of money out um, and uh, requires a bit more trust because there's less time to, um, to recover. And so uh, that's, that's what I would say. Rebel. Thanks for that, Sean. And uh, thanks for the question, Rabel. Okay. Mel with a couple more questions here and um yeah, we'll cut it off at one uh, eight oh five, guys. So if you have any other questions right now, just enter it in. Okay, so unrelated to JV, as a real estate lawyer and investor yourself, do you see any market movement trend in this asset class right now with all the things happening in the world? Well, I don't. You know, Mel, I'm not sure which asset class, but you know, let's assume we're talking, you know, small multifamily, single family flips or burrs, et cetera, uh, if we can aggregate those into an asset class, you know, sort of real estate, investor real estate. Um, I am seeing a little bit right now. Uh, I'm trying to wholesale a deal that would have sold two weeks ago uh, very quickly. <laughs> and um, then the interest rate got announced and then the war started. And um, now it's not selling very quickly. And so what I've, what I've heard from a few people that I work with is that, you know, markets that were seeing 40 offers on a house two or three weeks ago are now getting none. So a couple of things happened, right? Interest rates scared people into the market. So more supply showed up and interest rates scared buyers away because they didn't want to pay, you know, we were basically getting free money uh, for quite a while. Uh, and so, you know, the interest rate goes up and now, you know, I don't, I don't know how many basis points it went up. I forget, but mm, you know, this, it wasn't uh, that it's fifty basis points. I believe. Fifty basis points. I believe points. it was. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, a small notch, you know, a notch nonetheless. But that scared a number of retail buyers away. So, you know, here's the thing: this is not a short-term game, right? This is a long-term, you know, wealth-building strategy. So, this is a ripple. This is a ripple that's you know barely going to show 
you know, if you, if you look over five or 10 years. So I'm not all that concerned. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still looking for deals. I'm still trying to help clients find deals and my clients are buying, you know, faster than I can almost keep up with. So, um, you know, now the, the old adage, you know, I was sure you've seen or heard is, you know, it's not, it's not timing the market, it's time in. So, you know, I wouldn't really worry too much about these ripple trends uh, because uh, you're in this for the long term. Yeah, they say, they say be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Uh, so it might just be an opportunity. Uh, Adrian says increase was 25 right. basis points. So thank you for correcting me. All right. So um, is it possible... Is it possible to sell your JV agreement to someone? That's our next question. So I don't sell my JV agreement pressing. And uh, you, you might recall, Mel, that I, I mentioned earlier that I asked 80 to 100 questions. It would, frankly, be irresponsible for me to sell that agreement to someone because you know, I spent a lot of time and, and study making sure that I could understand agreements like that and be able to help you navigate them uh, and explain them to you. Right. So to sell that now would would be putting someone who is not legally trained at substantial risk, right? Because they don't know how the agreement plays off um, um, or the various provisions play off each other. And so um, I, I don't I don't sell my precedent. I'm happy to work with people. You know, I'm not even that all, all that expensive, right? We just we get on a call. There's really good value uh, to uh, to working with someone like myself or other. You know, there's few other lawyers in the space that sort of work almost exclusively with investors. So we'll pick one and, uh, and work with them because, because, you know, buying template agreements just puts you in the same position you were before. Now I'm wondering if, if maybe the intent with that question was sell your interest. Oh, sell your interest. Oh, oh, in that case, uh, of course you can, if the terms of the JV agreement allow for it. So, you know, agreements that I draft typically do not allow for transfers. We typically exclude all transfers of interest, except for certain exceptions. You know, one of them is the obvious one, like a non-arms length transfer to another corporation or to a family trust where, you know, you still are, are the partner. It's just that you're owning it in a different capacity. Um, I also make sure that if someone wants to get out, that they offer their partner a right of first refusal, right? So, because just because you want out doesn't mean your partner does. Okay. And we have one more question here. So with the competitive market, do you see more and more clients buying deals sight unseen? You know, I don't actually know. Um, that's not usually a, a criteria that they talk to me about. Yeah. Uh, you know, the deals show up and I get to work. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, I'm my, my business, my contributions to the business happen before the deals, right? I'm getting on Zoom calls. We're talking about particular strategies, particular structures, and, um, and then my clients go and find the deals and, and lock them up. I don't, I don't really know uh, whether they're buying sight unseen, but I would imagine that uh, they were, and they were leading up to uh, a couple of weeks ago, for sure. Yeah, it's funny how, how things just change like that. But it, it reminds me somewhat of what happened uh, when the first lockdown was announced and no one knew what was going to happen. I think there's a lot of uncertainty just the same. And uh, that's the thing about 
uncertain times is pretty well everybody's uncertain <laughs> it's just those uh those few that are willing to act in spite of that that seem to uh, really right. benefit um well, I, my feel is that and this is a total you know thought and it, it may or may not but um, my feeling is that after a few weeks maybe a month people start to get a better grasp of what's going on and and we'll really see which direction the market's going to go in and at that point um up or down. I, I mean, I feel like it'll, it'll bounce back, but that's an onion. We could peel off a lot of layers on and we don't have time for that <laughs> yeah. right now. So, um, very important question for you now is how do people, if they would like to, to, um, ask you to, uh, help them out, how do they do that? Well, the best way uh, is to reach me, uh, at my law firm email, Sean at carsonlaw.ca. Um, you can also find me on social media. I'm at the REI lawyer on uh, Instagram, or you can find me on Facebook as well. Uh, you can search my name or, or uh, REI lawyer and uh, you'll find me or my business page. And I'm talking on social media to, you know, current clients, new clients uh, pretty much every day. And so uh, you'll also find me in the, in the groups offering insight where I can and, and offering value as, as much as I can. Cause that's, Really, the name of the game is, is just being allowed for value. Smart niche to get into. I'm always impressed when business owners get into a specific niche. There's so many real estate lawyers out there, but very few real estate investor lawyers, um, if any, that would call themselves that. Right. So that was the first one. There wasn't. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a single one. Very cool. Yeah. All right, um, Sean, really appreciate this. Thanks to everyone for uh, for being on here, providing your questions. I mean, it wouldn't be the same if you didn't do that. Didn't do that. Um, and uh, shameless plug for the podcast, like this event, this this kind of thing actually, you know, costs me money. I don't charge for this. Um, John's not charging anything for this, nor is he paying me anything. Um, you know, this is just purely for the value. So if you did get something out of this, I am going to share this on the podcast platform. If you haven't already, leave me a review there. And if this ends up on YouTube, you know, just uh, share it with uh, with a bunch of people. Try and get the word out there. All right. So thank you, Sean, and uh, everyone have a great night. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Please make sure to share this episode far and wide. Help it help more people. I really appreciate you tuning in. I'll see you on the next one.